From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Hurricane Dorian is moving north after lashing the coast and outer banks of the Carolinas with heavy winds, rain, and tornadoes. And Georgians are moving back to their homes. Hurricane-force winds only edged along the state's coast in the end, causing less flooding and havoc than predicted. Still, the impact on the economies and lives of the areas east of I-95 under mandatory evacuation remains, along with plenty of evidence that those orders were ignored. We're looking at the storm's aftermath today with Emily Jones from GPB Savannah Bureau, who's been covering the storm for days. Emily, glad to hear you're safe and sound. Hi, Virginia. Thanks. Predicting where a hurricane will end up is an inexact science. Here's what the Weather Channel said of Dorian a week ago. Flooding is going to be a major concern. Now, coastal flooding surge, we could see days with power outages for parts of the coast, and that's because this storm could pack a lot of wind for a long duration. Well, sigh of relief there along the coast of Georgia. we beginning with predictions that Dorian would make landfall in, Earl, in Florida earlier this week, but it took longer for the storm to hit the coastline and pretty much passed along Georgia offshore. How are things looking in Savannah today, Emily? I mean, it's a beautiful day in Savannah, first of all, which often happens after a storm. I'm, I, I see nothing but blue sky out my window. It's a lovely sunny day. Um, and, you know, Savannah had uh, some debris down um, yesterday, and there's still some of that today as people clean up. But it was really a lot less than predicted and a lot less than we experienced in prior hurricanes as yeah. well. How much rain did Savannah and other coastal areas get? It depends on um, where you're taking the measurement, but it, it was, for most places, in the order of one to two inches, mm. um, which was, you know, less than they predicted. But the storm surge and flooding were big concerns, especially for the coastal islands. How did that pan out in the end? Well, we basically got really lucky with the timing of the storm. Um the storm surge was actually within the prediction that they forecast. The National Weather Service said um, we could see a three to five foot uh, storm surge from Dorian, and we did. It was it ended up being three point five feet. But um, you know, in the days before the storm hit, it was looking like we were going to experience that storm surge right around high tide, mm-hmm. and so they were expecting some very serious flooding. As it panned out, um, it actually hit at low tide. So we had three and a half feet of storm surge, but we didn't. There wasn't really flooding from that because uh, it was low tide. Well, there have been plenty of internet memes about dire warnings for Dorian being overblown. Governor Kemp did issue mandatory evacuation orders for anyone east of I-95 in certain counties. How many people complied and actually left the coast? A total number is really hard to gauge because, of course, a lot of people get in their own car and drive, mm-hmm. um, and that's not really something that's easy to count. But um, it was it was definitely fewer than, than have left in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, about 1,100 people took buses from the Savannah Civic Center. That's people who don't have their own means of transportation. They, they can go and get a bus to a shelter in Augusta. Um, and that's about, that's about half of, of the people who left during Matthew. Um, of course, the numbers varied for different, different counties up and down the coast, but fewer, fewer people left, for sure. That is, that is definite. And what did you hear from people who decided not to evacuate? A lot of people just sort of suspected that this storm wasn't going to be that bad, that, that you know, so the, the coast kept moving in and out of that, that cone of uncertainty of where the track of the storm might go. But, but you know, people 
felt like this just storm wasn't going to be as bad as Matthew. It wasn't going to be as bad as Irma. Um, of course, that was a really hard thing to predict ahead of time, but they, they did end up being right. Was the traffic leaving the area one of the things that might have kept people in place? It might have been, um, as well as their experience evacuating in prior storms. You know, people were pretty frustrated um, after Hurricane Matthew in 2016 um, because they evacuated, and then um, it was a long time before the order was lifted and they were able to get back in because there was so much damage and roads weren't safe and, and there were power outages. You know, they, they had to delay the, the return of people, but that frustrated a lot of people. And then with Hurricane Irma, a lot of people evacuated, and then the track of the storm shifted, and it turned out they were evacuated kind of into the path of the storm. So uh, some people were, were frustrated, I think, with their prior experience and were kind of like, this doesn't seem like it's worth it to leave when the impacts might not be so bad. There was a report earlier this week that low-income communities are disproportionately affected by climate change and extreme weather. And evacuating is expensive. You have to shell out for hotel rooms or crash with friends. Brenda Meeks of Savannah explained her situation to GPB. Either not paying, not eating, or try to pay my rent, or don't leave town. And as you said, a lot of people decided not to leave town. GPB's Grant Blankenship, our colleague, asked a FEMA official what people like Meek should do. How does FEMA advise people who are worried about the cost of leaving? Well, that FEMA official's uh, response to our colleague Grant was basically people should set aside a little bit of money um, to to save, to to help pay for something like this, um, you know, a, a little bit of a nest egg for the next evacuation, which, you know, a large portion of Savannah lives below the poverty line, and a lot of people live paycheck to paycheck. Um, so that could be pretty difficult advice to follow uh, for, for a lot of people here. Well, some do argue that central control of evacuation decisions encourages overcaution. You know, no official wants to be blamed for, you know, look what happened in the Bahamas. Look what happened during Hugo, for example, uh, 20 years ago or so. Do you think residents recognize that and kind of cock their eyebrows and say, eh, I'll stay? Yeah, uh, I think I think that is that is some of the response. Um, I think people, you know, in this day and age, there's so much forecasting and there is so much um, information that's out there. The National Hurricane Center releases updates every couple of hours that are available to everybody. And so a lot of people are watching the storm themselves in addition to getting information from officials and um, yeah, I think I think a lot of people make their own judgments instead of instead of listening to what uh, what forecasters and what state and local officials uh, say about what what the impacts could be, and that's sort of what they base their decision on. Sometimes you spoke with Tybee Island Mayor Jason Bilterman. Here is what he said about what what we're talking about: evacuation fatigue. If that's our biggest issue, is convincing people to leave in the future. You know, we don't have homes that are flooded. We don't have property that's destroyed. We don't have a beach that's completely gone. Um, we don't have people's lives turned upside down for the third time in four years. Then that's fine with me. Yeah, so a good result in the end. But the real concern about if the coast evacuates for what turns out to be heavy rain, will residents be as willing to leave before the next big one? So, so what are officials going to do about evacuation fatigue? I think, and, and what, what Jason Bilterman said to me is they're just going to try to, you know, give people the best information they can and encourage them to listen to evacuation orders when they come in. Um, you know, par- part of it is that just every storm is 
really different. And so even though uh, this one, we ended up lucky and didn't didn't really see many impacts, that doesn't that doesn't have any bearing on whether the next storm is going to impact us. So I think that's kind of what officials are banking on is that, you know, next time there's a forecast and it looks bad, that they'll be able to convey uh, that information. Whether that's true or not, you know, we can't really tell until there's another evacuation, which hopefully won't be for a long time. Yeah, well, the hurricanes have been pretty painful in Georgia in recent years with Irma and Michael. So what are forecasters predicting for the rest of this season? Well, we are in the most active part of hurricane season. The sort of uh, late, late August, September, October is the time when we usually see more more hurricanes. Um, and they actually, a couple weeks ago, did revise the the forecast for hurricane season. Uh, you know, initially they were saying it might be a little lower. Now they're saying they're predicting an above average season. Um, again, that doesn't necessarily mean that any of those storms are going to come toward Georgia, but uh, we're not we're not out of hurricane season yet. And the the you know the storms you mentioned from past years, Matthew, Michael, Irma, all came in you know what are now the coming weeks, and later in September and in October. So, yeah. Emily Jones, thanks so much. Stay safe. Thank you. Emily Jones from RGPB Morning Edition host and reporter out of Savannah. GPB will be keeping you up on the weather throughout the hurricane season, of course, so stay with us for that. In Macon, classical musicians are stepping off stage and into the ICU. GPB's Grant Blankenship reports on music as medicine. The intensive care unit at Nevisant Health's hospital in Macon is like ICUs everywhere. Nurses and doctors constantly checking in on the seriously ill, all while trying to keep the noise down. But there's one sound you can't escape. So much beeping. That's Nevisant ICU nurse Taylor Rickert. These monitors beep, the, the machines beep, the pumps beep, everything beeps. You get home at night, it still beeps. Rickert says the beeps are important, of course, because they communicate about the conditions of patients. She couldn't do her job without them. But in terms of emotional well-being, the beeping can be tough. That's why it was a relief when violist Keone Bolding unpacked his instrument near one of the ICU nurses' stations on a recent morning and launched into a set of mostly Christmas favorites. Bolding was invited here by Avanish Barr, one of the ICU's doctors. Barr doesn't play music himself. I play the radio. <laughs> but about a year ago, he recognized the value of having music in what can be an emotionally chilly place. It's, it's cold. It's very clinical. I felt the need that at least we needed to introduce the concept of at least something more human or humane in the ICU to kind of make it a softer environment. And it's not just that music on the ward feels nice. Barr says there's science behind this. Uh, there's some studies have shown that when you use music, you've reduced the anxiety that patients have, the fear that patients have. One study showed that music before and after surgery was better at reducing anxiety than anti-anxiety medication. Studies suggest classical music works best here. For the elderly, playing the music they enjoyed in their youth has documented benefits. You reduce some delirium or episodes of confusion because it's something they can relate to. Studies suggest not all music is created equal for the purposes of intensive care. Jazz? 
it might require too much mental attention to be therapeutic. And heavy metal and techno can apparently cause heart arrhythmias in a clinical setting, so no turning it up to 11. Dr. Barr says musicians in the hallway are a nice start, but he's not sure patients hear it from the other end of the ward. Uh, but yeah, so I think some of the ICUs do have the facilities for that, where music's piped in directly to a patient's bedside. That would allow more personal music choices, too. Keone Boulding plays a set at either end of the ward so everyone can hear. Deneen Schumann is among those outside their loved one's rooms listening in. Schumann shoots video on her phone as Boulding plays and sings along until he's done. And then she checks to see how her father-in-law enjoyed it. Oh, just to see the look on his face. The music just makes your soul just dance. It turns out music can be good medicine, too. That's GPB's Grant Blankenship. And you can always join the conversation on our Facebook group, GPB Radios on Second Thought. We've got a number of comments on my conversation with Helen Ellis, author of The Southern Lady Code. That code is, if you don't have anything nice to say, say something not so nice in a nice way. We asked for your examples of veiling insults with sweetness. And David posted this, bless your pee-picking little heart means you're dumber than a stump. And Joanne pulled this one out. I recently overheard someone say to a friend, I wish I were confident enough to wear that outfit. Yesterday, we featured an interview with Atlanta hip-hop duo Earth Gang. Their debut album on Dreamville Records is called Mirrorland, and it's out today. Camille on Facebook wrote, Even if your hip-hop is not your preference, you will enjoy this beautiful interview. Well, thank you so much. We certainly hope so. You can listen to that full conversation and see some video of that interview at gpbnews.org. It's well worth watching. Their outfits alone were great. Never mind the conversation. You can leave us your comment on our Facebook page, and we might read it on the air. We're also on Twitter at OST Talk. Coming up, Myra Kalman's exhibit is closing at the High Museum. Well, we spoke to her first. Stay with us for that. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Artist Myra Kalman's career in picture books began with a song. Kalman is perhaps best known by adults for the now iconic New Yorker stand and other covers for The New Yorker magazine, or a dozen books, including And the Pursuit of Happiness and the Principles of Uncertainty. But she's written and illustrated 18 books for children. They are the inspiration for an exhibition at the High Museum called The Pursuit of Everything, and it's closing on September 15th. One of her books, Max Makes a Million, about a beat poet dog, was adapted for the stage by the Alliance Theater earlier in the summer. I spoke with Myra Kalman as the exhibit was opening, and we started by talking about her first book, Stay Up Late, and what her husband, the influential graphic designer and magazine editor, Tibor Kalman, had to do with the cover of the Talking Heads album that it appeared on. Tibor had a design company called M&Co, so we had a relationship with the Talking Heads and with David, and when that book came out and we had little children, we knew we were in a, in a new era of what could children's books be, and it was a perfect Union. Did you have children at that time? We had two little kids. So two little kids. So which <laughs> felt like you know, we well, you know twenty little kids, but two little kids. <laughs> but so the books that you were reading for them, were you finding the things that you wanted? 
There are tremendously beautiful, of course, uh, children's books from all the eras. And, of course, we read the classics, William Steig and A.A. A. Millen and the Madeline book, The Bemelmans, which is my hero, and, and the Eloise books. Uh, there's no lack of phenomenal writing and phenomenal illustration for children. It wasn't as if there was a lack. It was just that I was an, an editorial illustrator and I thought, wouldn't it be lovely to do a, a whimsical children's book related to my style? So 18 books later, you clearly kept going. What did you like so much about making picture books? Uh, you know, I always say this, and, and I, and I ca- kind of mean it, not flippantly, that you can be really smart and really stupid for children. <laughs> and the parameters aren't the same as working for adults, which I also love to do. And basically, what you really want to do is share a story. You're, you're seeing the world, and you're looking and looking and looking, and then you're saying, this is what I see, and this is my story. So it's always a delight. It's never boring. And uh, for children, you really have to edit down to a certain number of pages, so you have to be concise. And I love that. Fewer words the better. Well, you wanted to be a writer when you were growing up. Is that correct? Yes, I very much thought that I would be a writer. And I had read Pippi Longstocking as a child, and I thought, this I can do this. The teenage years, the tumultuous, morbid, angst-ridden teenage years arrived, and so did the, and the writing reflected that. And I thought, this is really unbearable. Who would want to read this, this horrible, sad stuff? So I thought painting and, and drawing would be easier in the way and light, more lighthearted. So there were lots of people who I could look towards and say, ah, I can do this. I can incorporate some narrative, some typography, still loving books and relating to books. And being an illustrator is a great relationship to the spoken word and the written word. So how about when you had kids of your own? Did they inspire your books or were you trying to entertain them and trying things out with them? They were constantly my models. And, you know, I've written books about them, Lulu and Alex. That's who they really are. When they were little, they thought they had gone to Japan because I did a book about them in Japan. They had never been there, but they were very happy to tell people that they had been there. The absurd and the real world, the mundane world, is always appealing to me. There's always an intersection. Kids are the most inspiring people on earth, for sure. Well, I see that in your drawings, your illustrations that are up on the walls of the High Museum now. Even that, even that first book, the stay up late. You know, you have a kind of apartment scene with this various members of a family, you know, doing their own little things inside of a room. And then this wailing baby in the corner sort of being pulled out. How do you come up with these little tableau, these little tiny worlds? That's the mystery of sitting down in front of a blank piece of paper and then saying, I have to fill this. The sense of organizing the world in a certain way, at a certain point, it's a delight to be the master of the universe. And that's what you are when you're sitting down in front of the paper. So I'm imagining music, I'm imagining movement. And I think that's one of the reasons that the play is going to happen, the musical is going to happen, Max Makes a Million, because everything is very kinetic. There's always the crazy stuff going on and and lovely stuff going on. So it's always a mix. Well, for listeners who don't know your books, who is Max? Max Stravinsky, the beat poet dog. He's a kind of beagle kind of dog that wears a an askew hat and a brown coat. And in a way, he's me. He's a wanderer and a wanderer. And he travels around and makes poems and meets people. And a lot of the people that he meets in my book were actual people, you know, like Bruno, who paints invisible paintings, and he's a friend of mine who paints invisible paintings, and he's lovely and smart and charming. So it's a great opportunity to view the world from a kind of journalistic, artful way with a sense of humor and say, this is the world that we're in. Isn't this funny and strange?
Well, Max's best friend Bruno makes invisible paintings for the Museum of Incredibly Modern Art, (laughs) which is in New York City, of course. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. These are so funny. I mean, for kids to get it on one level and to be delighted with them, but for parents who are read or adults who are reading these books to think, oh my goodness, it saves me from reading Goodnight Moon. Nothing against Goodnight Moon. No, nothing against Goodnight Moon. That's brilliant. By the way, and the and and she's a great great writer, but uh, but you know to be able to be playful with language and to make up songs and puns and and really to experiment and it's a wonderful thing for children to see. Oh, you can really play with the design and with with all of it, and the same for parents that it should be an inspiring conversation for them, without being too over you know too didactic or too moralistic or all those things. So uh, it should be open and have air in it. They're not dumbing down for children. Sometimes with heavier topics, I'm thinking of Fireboat. This was written after 9-11. Also, Thomas Jefferson, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Everything. In Fireboat, you illustrate planes flying toward the Twin Towers and, you know, this terrible explosion. In Thomas Jefferson's book, The Slave Quarters at Monticello, don't shy away from talking about Sally Hemings. So we see these images at the high, and a lot of parents try to shield kids from even remotely sensitive topics like those. Why did you wade in? So it would have been impossible not to do a children's book and not talk about this woman who he had six children with. Mm-hmm. And so that's a big part of the story, and it, it would be uh, you know, unconscionable not to. I think it's inevitable that if you love children and you have a humanistic respect for children, that there's nothing that you can't talk about if you have a kind heart about it. So I don't want to be gruesome or miserable and, and scary. But I think that there's nothing better than being honest in a loving, kind way. The children are so curious and have so many questions about things, and there's no reason not to tell the truth. You're listening to my earlier conversation with artist and storyteller Myra Kalman. A high museum exhibition of her illustration and books for children closes on September 15th. You have collaborated with plenty of people, from Kirsten Gillibrand on a book about women who helped get the right to vote, books with Daniel Handler, the author of the Limini Snicket books, your son Alex, and many others. So what was it like to do this collaboration with a director and an and actors and a playwright giving over your book. Well, it's interesting because usually I'm obsessively controlling and I, you know, probably maybe for good reasons or maybe for bad. But in this instance, I thought this was an opportunity to let people take my work, create something, and then we'll see what it is. I mean, everybody who's involved is so smart and so talented and, you know, they understand my aesthetic. Otherwise, they wouldn't have taken this on in the first place and also the sensibility. So philosophically, aesthetically, you know, humoristically, I think we were all in tune, and I, so I, ha- I had very little to do with it, almost nil, and or nil. And so this is going to be a, a tremendously wonderful surprise to come and see it as music and dance. And because I'm, because I'm also embarking on my fledgling theatrical dance career. Okay, so tell me more about that, because somebody says you're obsessively co- controlling about your work, your output... I know drawings aren't static, but once you create them, you turn them over and they're there. But dance is a completely different thing. Acting is a different kind of high wire act. What is that? What what do you have to let go of to do something like that? Your dignity. 
<laughs> Tell me more. Truly. You really have to say, I may look like a fool. I may make a mistake. I may literally forget my lines or fall down. That falling down hasn't happened yet, but I'm sure it's going to happen in this next performance. And so you have to say, I, it may be a failure. It may be, you know, you really have to give up the control and you have to give up what the sense of success is and accomplishment and say, experimenting this is fantastic. Why are you letting yourself <laughs> be on stage? I don't know. It's a terrible, <laughs> terrible question. <laughs> You know, I'm torn. I probably want the, I, you know, I'm, I want to hide and then I want to be out there. It's, it's you know, it's a, co a complex thing to be a person. Yeah, but it, that also sounds like something that a lot of artists go through. You want to be out, you want your yeah. work out there in the world, but then you've got to make it. I mean, right. is that is yeah. that a challenge for you? Always, of course, because you just think that this is this time, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be what you, you know, what you have in your soul. It'll never be realized in that way. And that's, you know, it, sh it the good news is that it doesn't stop me and that I'm continually producing work because you could be paralyzed and say, I can't possibly do this. But something in me says, okay, I'm going to continue. And, you know, I have enough positive reinforcement in many parts of my life to allow myself in this iteration to to see if I succeed or fail. And it's an interesting, you, you just learn a lot. How do, how do you empty your brain of all of those voices that say you're not going to do it right long enough to do it? I guess that's practice. I'm really good for, uh, you know, I'm really good at emptying my brain. I, I have an, I'm an empty brain expert. <laughs> how do you do it? And I think, you know, I could give courses in it. And I think that one of the things that you, you know, you do, walking is an incredible way to empty your brain. And really just, and especially for women, you know, to turn off a kind of loop of, I'm a failure, this isn't going to work out. I think, it, you know, I, maybe it's a stupid generalization to say that women have it more than men, but clearly, you know, the, the life of doubting yourself, you, you can turn that off and see what happens instead. Yeah, I wouldn't know anything about that, Myra. <laughs> I never hear those yeah. things. <laughs> right, exactly. And well, you know, and also the the doubting voice and and the doubting voice serves a purpose because you really have to make decisions and you say, okay, out of all of the terrible decisions, what's the least terrible? So that's an, also a process, you know, that that kind of panic and worry and then stopping and working. Working is the only solution to all of that, by the way. Yeah. Uh, so it's the motivator for the work, and it's also the thing that makes it go away in some level. Right. There is a pop quiz that you created, and it's on the wall as part of the exhibit at the high. The last question there is, how many mistakes did you make today? <laughs> Every time I open my mouth. And you know what's interesting is that uh, I've gotten so many letters. Well, from yeah, children. I was going to ask. You left oh, your address it's there. So it's what, incredible. What did they say? Hundreds said? and hundreds. Oh, the range of mistakes is if, you know, they make a mistake or, and whatever it could be, I wore the wrong sock or then they blame other people for their mistakes and say, I made no mistakes, but my sister made many, you know. So the, the, the range of what you consider in your life a mistake, I find really fascinating. Because what does that even mean? And what does embarrassment mean? So we, you know, we go through life terrified of making mistakes and yet we make them from morning till night. I have, to, I mean, I can't think of anything specific. You know, maybe I was short tempered with somebody this morning already. Is that a mistake? I don't know. So we didn't get to talk about another new project of yours, Cake. This is a new cookbook with Barbara Scott Goodman. But we, we see in the show at the high some of the things that you love cake, for one thing, dogs, 
hats, the founders, Thomas Jefferson in particular. What are some of the other things that you love that you'd like to leave us with today? Well, I, I actually want to leave you with another book that I did, which was Sarah Berman's Closet. And it, it's a book about my mother's This is your mom's closet. closet. Yeah. It's a, and it's a, a, a book that came out of an exhibit at my son's museum. So Alex Kalman is my son, and he uh, is now an adult and has his own museum on Cortland Alley in New York City. And so we installed a replica of my mother's closet after she died. We kept all her things. And she only wore white, by the way. But that's just one aspect of it. So the show traveled from his tiny alleyway niche to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. We are always talking about how marvelous and amazing it is that somebody who had a very humble life and had a very humble attitude towards things is such a tremendous inspiration and that the daily life of of just the things that you do and how you really have to pay attention and create beauty around you that means something to you so she was tremendously inspiring in that way and so i love her more than cake <laughs> well, and it's so beautiful. I've seen photographs of this exhibit. It's just completely ordered and spare and almost, it almost looks curated in a way. Why put that on display? Your mother's closet. What What is it about that that epitomizes who she was? I think that when somebody has so much, such mindful attention to something with such a sense of humor, that and beauty that you, uh, you know, what else do you need in life? It's interesting to think of you looking at your mother's closet or you have as, as a child, you know, seeing works of art in many things. Is that what you're hoping to inspire for children in your books? I think so. I think that the sense of waking up in the morning and that the day is a complete surprise. I mean, you have things to do, but you really don't know what you're going to see. And that that is the thing that keeps you happy basically, because there's a lot of stuff to make you sad. So if you're really looking and you are enchanted by things, um, you have a good chance of being okay in your life. You must be the best grandma possible. <laughs> wait, wait, would you call my daughter and you didn't no, tell her that? that? She knows that. And tell her that. No, she knows that. And I write a letter. I have a three-year-old uh, granddaughter who I write... A letter to every week since she was born and so she has a she's got a book they're on view at the high some of those letters are on view at the high that's right which I, gives you know, us a course. little picture i thank you for a wonderful conversation i'm so glad we had the chance to speak with you Meyer kalman thank you thank you very much that was great That was my earlier conversation with artist Myra Kalman. Her work inspired the exhibition at the High Museum called The Pursuit of Everything, which closes on September 15th. You can see more of her work and find out about the exhibition at gpbnews.org. I'm Virginia Prescott, and we are back with more on Second Thought and this. Mm -hmm. 
That's right. GPB's Football Fridays in Georgia is back. Television broadcasts of high school games resume September 20th, and Football Fridays podcast has just started its new season. John Nelson is host and correspondent for both shows. He's here to tell us about the start of the high school season. Hello. Check. Yes. <laughs> Check uh, you Yes. I, I, yeah, I agree with all of your preamble. <laughs> all right. Good. Glad to, glad to see we're on the same page. You got it. The local high school football game is absolutely, we know, the favorite show in town for many Georgia communities. You've been traveling throughout the state, chatting with coaches, watching teams practice. So what's the feel on the field as this new season begins? Well, it's over 400 schools chasing after a championship, and this is where the optimism begins anew here in the early part of the season. And everybody sits there and says, okay, well, who do you think is going to win? Who's going to win this matchup? Who's going to win this matchup? I said, I love all of my children equally. You're never going to get a prediction out of me ever. I just like seeing the the newness of it all and who's going to be the the team that's going to come out of nowhere who's going to be the team that we always know is going to be there and i think that this year you're probably going to see a lot of the same folks who made deep playoff runs last year do the same thing this year well let's hear from some of the things that you got when on your road trip you went to clinch county high school between valdosta and waycross this is a school which has had just four head coaches in as many decades new to the roster is don tyson starting his first season on the job here he is talking with you about his dad who was one of few former head coaches on the same team because I lost my dad when I was 23 the majority of my memories of him come from football bus rides to the games you know on the practice field with me on Friday nights you know I was the ball boy growing up so uh, it's hard for me to put into words you know what it meant uh, to me when I got a job Wow. Mm-hmm. So years later, still yeah. hitting them. Well, and that's the thing about uh, a lot of these communities, but let's specifically talk about Homerville and Clinch County. I knew that he lost his dad. And so when we sat down for this interview, that was my first question. I said, you've been an assistant there. You grew up there. You've all this, all this history that you have attached. I said, when you were named head coach, did you talk to your dad? And that was part of the response that oh, you heard. Oh, he said that he was gone. Yeah, I mean, well, and that's the thing is I knew he lost him. And so we always have our talks with our, our favorite relatives and things like that just when we're having our alone time. And that's why I asked Don, I said, did you talk to your dad about it? And that's what the response, part of the response that he gave. Four coaches in 45 years. Don Tyson Sr. was the first. Cecil Barber, Jim Dickerson just retired. Don Tyson Jr. was his offensive coordinator. Now Don Jr. takes over. I grew up in that legacy. So mm-hmm. strong. Mm-hmm. Well, in a more urban community, the second most winning coach in the history of Georgia high school football is at the Marist School yep. in Atlanta. Alan Chadwick has an unusual support system for her, his team. Here's what he told you. We've been very fortunate that we've had great coaches that have played at our school and have come back to help coach. Yes, we do have to depend on community coaches. Uh, we would love to have more in our classrooms, but they come in and give us a great job, give us great effort, and they know the game very well and they teach it very well. Community coach, does that mean they're not employed at the school? Right. You have this in a lot of the the schools that have smaller enrollments where you'll have coaches who just live in the community and they want to be a part of it. And they know X's and O's or they know a specific position because they may have played it for that particular coach like Alan Chadwick at Marist, who's been there for over three decades, and they want to find ways to give back. And they do this. And the coaches, as an example, their real jobs. One of the coaches in the past was one of the leaders of the Red Dog Unit for Atlanta Police. No kidding. And he would come back and coach and be a community coach for Alan Chadwick on the weekends. And so that's the the kind of stuff that you get. And it's just it's fun to see 
the the give back when you have situations like this. I just think it's really cool. Well, that really counters the idea that, you know, teams with a lot of trophies also have a lot of money to pay their coaching staff. Yeah, and it's it's fun to see, you know, you have some coaching staffs in the higher classifications where you might have 15, 20 coaches, including middle school, elementary school, and all this kind of stuff. And then you have someone like Marist and Alan Chadwick, and you have the, the tie-ins to the past, and you always want to be true to your school, and that's what you have there at Marist with community coaches. And that's not the only place. A lot of the smaller classifications in the in the uh, urban areas have it too. So, but that was just an example of, of what it's like at Marist to, to have that pedigree. Well, another notable coach, Buddy Nobles, beloved head coach in Irwin County, about an hour east of Albany. Albany, sorry. Um, he has been diagnosed with stomach cancer. You spoke with him as well. My wife's upset. Everybody's solemn, boo-hooing and everything. And, and finally, I had enough of it. I said, you know what? I said, we ain't going to be this woe as me. Uh, you know, and I told him flat out, I said, I'm a winner. And I said, the only games I've ever lost is the games with a roof over my head. I said, we ain't going to lose this. Whoa. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a true coach. Yeah, and I found out that he had been diagnosed when I was doing one of my Southern Swings. And one of his friends who was a head coach, and he was when Buddy was an assistant at another place, they, it's like, have you heard about Buddy? And I'm like, well, no, I haven't. And so he said, well, he's been diagnosed. And I was supposed to go see him the next day. Mm. And I texted him, and I said, uh, can I still come and see you with what's going on? He says, yeah, come on, let's, let's talk about it. And, and the interviews that we posted on the social media platforms are really cool windows to see how Buddy's tackling it. He's making uh, trips up here to Emory as a part of his chemo and treatments and things like that. And so uh, really, for me, it's just an opportunity to sit there and reinforce. I, I tell him every time I text him, I say, I love you very much. Mm-hmm. And, and that's another message that he wanted to give out. Don't be afraid to tell folks that you love them. Oh, that's such a nice thing to hear. Well, this is, a, is really being dealt with in another community in southeast Georgia. Yep. A little over a month ago, Jeff Davis High School senior Jordan Bavaro died in a car accident. A terrible loss of a young man, a teammate, a, a son, and a friend. You talked to head coach Lance Helton about how he was coping. For the first time in my career, I felt like I was by myself, standing alone. At that point, it was about doing, in my mind, what was right for the young men in this community, for Jordan Bavaro, and for Jeff Davis County as a whole. But, you know, you end up thinking of coaches as these tough pillars guiding young athletes. They have all the tools to mm-hmm. do it. But here you are talking to a coach that's like, I don't know how to do this. Well, the thing is, is that coaches have their systems. They have their mentors. We all have our mentors. And I know that you've got mentors on speed dial. I do, too. Same thing for coaches, and for the first time in Lance Helton's life, he had his coach mentors on speed dial, and he wanted advice. It's like, okay, how can I handle this? How do I attack this? They're like, no idea. Yeah. And so it's it's been a, a learning experience for Lance, for the entire Hazelhurst community. We're working on a piece that's going to be airing on the, the GPB sports platforms in a little while. But uh, the lesson is here, it's twofold. Uh, you know, for Lance Helton, it's like if I can help coaches – God forbid they should ever be in a situation like this. If I can help them go through something like this, then I'm helping out in this process too. But it's a one-stop like town in Jeff Davis in Jeff Davis County in Hazelhurst, and they're they're having stickers on the backs of helmets and things like that. But you go back to practice, and they're trying to to do things as normally as possible, and they're off to a two and zero start. Yeah, well, there you go. Well, on uh, on a very optimistic note, and that actually sounds quite optimistic to me. Which other players, schools, have you geeked out on this year? You know, stories that uh, well, even this a go- non-football okay. fan all right, might care This goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. I love all of my children equally, and it, <laughs> and for me, when I get to go out on Southern Swing and Central Swing, and just kind of leave the city and go and visit all of these coaches, and I think we did the math. We ended up looking at over forty coaches so far before the season started to get all this information. 
for me, it's just good to catch up and see folks and see, all right, so how are things this year? What's it like for you here? What's it like for the town? Just to get that kind of feel. And uh, literally what we do is I will pick up the phone and I will set up a loose idea of what I want to do. Then call hour and 10 minutes apart. It's like, okay, I'm going to be there in five minutes. I need you for five. Okay, we'll be there. Meet you up front. John Nelson, back in the seat, host of GPB's podcast, Football Fridays in Georgia. Also, the newest season is out. You can subscribe in all of our podcasts at gpb.org forward slash podcast. He's also commentator for the TV version of the show, back on Facebook Live. On the air broadcast starts September 20th. And the Facebook Live tonight, 720, Noonan and Alexander. Got it. And we're going to wrap things up today with some Georgia tunes from Mac Powell, an Atlanta-based multi-platinum Grammy-winning artist. His band Mac Powell and the Family Reunion recently released their new single, Back Again. Back Again is also the name of the new album from Mac Powell and the Family Reunion. They're now out on tour. Before his Atlanta performance, Mac added two new songs to our Georgia playlist. Hi, my name is Mac from Mac Powell and the Family Reunion. My favorite Georgia song is Sitting on the Dock of the Bay by Otis Redding. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting Watching the ships roll in, and then I watch them roll away again. Yeah, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay, watching the tide. Otis Redding is by far one of the greatest singers of all time. Uh, we hear so much of his music, and for being from Macon, Georgia, you know, it's I'm proud to be from the same state that Otis Redding is from. I left my home in Georgia, headed for the Frisco Bay. Hearing his songs through the years, hearing this amazing vocal, this amazing emotion that comes through that vocal, uh, seeing old videos of him on stage, so inspiring. And yet, people don't realize that he was a great songwriter as well. And when you hear the song, uh, it's so different than all the other songs that, that you usually hear from Otis Redding. Usually there's this loud and bombastic and emotional flurry of emotions from on stage, and yet this song is so reserved and so quiet, and, uh, and yet so emotional in the sense that you feel this sense of, in a way, a sense of depression, uh, a sense of... Uh, tiredness and yet it's not a sad song at all it's two thousand miles i roam just to make this dock my home now what's so interesting is at the end of the song uh, i read a little bit about it and that he was supposed to otis redding was supposed to do this little bit of scat slash rap kind of speak uh part at the end of the song and he forgot what he was supposed to say so he just breaks into
but it's such a happy happy melody for such a sad lyric of basically saying you know I don't I don't know what I'm going to be doing in life it's like I see the ships roll in and then I'm see them roll away again and it's like I, I don't know what's going to be happening in life and things are not what I thought they were supposed to be and, and in a way even though this is a pop song it's a very blues song there's so much blues where we we hear this amazing guitar part and this amazing vocal and yet these people are sharing their heart and yet we're we're bobbing our head and this song is is really not musically but from a lyrical standpoint an emotional standpoint really is a blues song The other song that I really want to talk about is from one of the greatest Georgia rock bands of all time, Driving and Crying. It's a song called Honeysuckle Blue. It was on a record of theirs called Mystery Road. And there's something about even the very beginning of this song when you hear this big guitar riff. And yet the story is, I think, a story that, that so many people can relate to in the sense of wandering and looking for a place to be, looking for a place that you can call home. Kevin Kinney is one of the greatest songwriters Georgia has ever uh, produced. And even though he's not from Georgia, he's lived in Georgia for so long, he's, I consider him a Georgia boy. And as we were getting, as I was getting started in, in music in Georgia, uh, right outside of the Atlanta area, my band, we would listen to Kevin Kenny's music and listen to Driving and Crying so much. And we'd be in the van and trailer days, you know, early driving 10 hours through the night to get to the next gig. We would listen to Driving and Crying being inspired by this local Georgia band going, man, if they, if they made it, we can too. And so even to this day, the love going and seeing them in concert and hearing Kevin Kenny's music. And it's, that's inspiring because, you know, you've been playing music for a long time and yet still continuing to make great music. It's funny, Mark Lee, who started my band that I used to be in third day with myself, we went to high school together and we would listen to, uh, everywhere we would drive, we would listen to Driving and Crying. It, there were years where we had this habit, every time we drove over the bridge for the Chattahoochee River, we would sing the chorus. Have you ever seen the Blue Ridge Mountains, boy? Oh, the Chattahoochee to the honeysuckle blue. Ba -ba -ba. And then it was like a rule, it was a law that you couldn't drive over the bridge unless you sang the chorus. Driving and Crying uh, had so many great hits, and it's a shame because they were they're one of those bands that uh, they definitely had notoriety and they definitely had success. I mean, they were able to travel the world and open up for some great acts, but and had some songs on on the radio, but but never quite got to the place that we as as fans thought that they should and that they deserved. And so that's why it's inspiring that uh, that not only. Uh, were they continuing to make music through those times, but even now continuing to go on the road and make fans and make great music. And so it's inspiring when, when you see someone who didn't necessarily 
become the biggest band in the world and said, but we're going to still do what we love and, and continue to uh, try to make great music. Mac Powell there from Mac Powell and the Family Reunion. Their debut album, Back Again, is now out. If you have a song or an artist to nominate to our Georgia playlist, you can connect with us on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. And you can join the conversation and follow along with our coverage of this whole month of music. GPB Loves Music is the hashtag. You can also find more on our Twitter page, OST Talk. And we'd love to hear who your favorite Georgia musician is, why you like them, which songs do you think are essential Georgia songs. And we just might feature some of your comments on the air. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Laraven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Nicewanger is our engineer. Our interns are Allison Kraussman, Jessica Lowell, and Alexis Thomason. Don Smith is the Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is Senior Producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. And like Mac, we will be back again on Monday. Have a beautiful weekend, y'all. This is On Second Thought.